Hello and welcome to the Rights Collective podcast, a place where we'll explore the distinct and subtle ways that gendered and other forms of inequality manifest within the British South Asian diaspora. With this podcast, we hope to vocalise the lived experiences within our communities while inviting dialogue with those who engage with it. This season, we'll be focusing on how our identities have been shaped by our culture, religion, gender, sexuality, upbringing and more. Through interviews with guests from the diaspora, we'll gain an insight on the diverse identities within our communities and learn how others have balanced the intersecting and perhaps conflicting aspects. Hi, I'm Habiba and I'm a project lead at the Rights Collective. Today I spoke with Tasneema Uddin, a writer and campaigner based in London. Together we talked about grassroots activism, organising as a Bangladeshi collective and rejecting the South Asian label as an identity. Hi Tasneema, how are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Great, thanks. So nice to speak to you again. Can you sort of tell me a bit about yourself and your upbringing and some of the things that you feel have shaped your identity? So I grew up in Surrey. I grew up in a very kind of white neighbourhood. I went to a very white working class school, so I was kind of... I guess, confronted with my identity at a very young age and I guess kind of had a difficult relationship with it growing up because of, I guess, the the racism I would face at school or the racism my family would face. So my dad also, he, at that time, he had a restaurant like most, I guess, facility uh, dads in the UK. That's That's how I grew up. You mentioned when we spoke last time that, you know, you grew up with two brothers, but you never really felt that sort of gendered dynamic um, whilst growing up. Can you speak more to that? Yeah. So I grew up with two brothers, one older, one younger. And I guess because I didn't really have any kind of female influences at that time, I, I would I would spend most of the time with my cousin brothers or my, or my own brothers. So I'd grow up and do the exact same things as them you know when when we got home I would go play football with them behind up behind our house with with all the boys and stuff so in that regard I think it's not so much that my parents didn't enforce gender roles on me I think I just rejected them at quite a young age because I just didn't feel comfortable and didn't I feel like I didn't really fit into those kind of roles and I guess you know that at that age, you don't really think about it as well. You just kind of do what, whatever you want to and feel mo- more comfortable at. So, yeah, growing up, I was, I, you know, I was just a tomboy, really. I guess when I was young, I didn't have to reject it as much. Did you feel like you ever had to sort of perform femininity in certain sort of contexts or situations whilst growing up? Yeah, I, I still feel like I I have to sometimes perform femininity sometimes today but I think growing up obviously being the only girl in the family there was a lot of instances when I guess people really didn't get why I was always with the boys playing football or just wasn't you know didn't really like wearing a camisa at that time anyway and there's a lot of instances where I felt like almost forced into play this role of the kind of good abiding daughter that you know thinking in Asian cultures anyway, when we have doubts and gatherings and stuff, it's always the daughters that are being made to kind of, you know, bring out the, you know, the tea and the food and, you know, introduce yourself to the guests and stuff. And, you know, I was I was very shy then as well. So I just, I really, really did not like those diet dynamics. And I really just did not feel comfortable engaging or, or playing that role at all. Yeah. And how do you think that's changed now, now that you're older? I think I did go through like for a few years, I did kind of try to 
not reject my younger self, more like I just wanted to see what it was like, what femininity, I guess, was like. And I did. But, you know, even today, I feel like I feel like I'm more comfortable stage with my gender that obviously, you know, I'm not forced into into wearing specific clothes or not forced into doing certain, you know, practices, etc. And, you know, you mentioned their clothes and um, being forced to do anything. I just wondered, you know, what's your relationship with faith like right now? And how does that compare to when you were growing up? Yeah, so um, I've kind of had a very unstable relationship with with my faith since since I was young I think for me personally I just think the idea of any anything being forced on me I kind of automatically reject it I think most kids do really so you know obviously I was I was taken to mosque when I was younger etc but didn't feel like I had a connection then um and I grew up in secondary school and primary school and I didn't I didn't have any kind of Muslim influences or Muslim friends or my you know my family my cousins etc not particularly religious well they weren't at that time anyway and I think I just didn't see it as a positive thing I just I just saw it as being being forced on me and having all these rules and stuff yeah I rejected a lot of it I think growing up um and obviously growing up you know facing racism and things because also because I'm Muslim or from a Islamic faith or whatever like it again did make me want to reject that part of me some more yeah so I just I, I felt really restricted as a child and and because of that I, I did reject it for for most of my life and then I guess as I grew older and I, I guess I realised that I didn't need to reject a lot of it. Um, and when I looked into it myself more and when I, I guess, when I went to university as well and um, just had more Muslim influences around me that saw the faith in a very different way than I saw it at that time, it kind of just opened me up to my faith in a lot of ways. And I think... Also, when I started kind of campaigning or organising, I, I did it, you know, when I, I, I got involved with my faith, faith in that time as well. And I think both of, both of the two, like activism and my faith, just kind of coincided and it just, I just saw it in a very different light. And then for me, I feel like, yeah, I'm constantly learning about it, obviously, but it's something that's uh, that's very, that is a, a big part of my life now. Um, and I think... It's funny because when I was younger, I just never, th- never really saw that happening at all. But you know, now I, you know, I think about. I feel like you know, my faith kind of. I do everything I do for God, you know. So I think that's that's where I'm at now, anyway. That's really beautiful that you mentioned that. Do you think, Tiznima, there was a defining moment, sort of, in your life, which really impacted your relationship with the faith, so Islam? Defining moments. I think there were just like a few defining moments. And the defining moments for me were really seeing how other people were using faith as kind of like a liberation tool instead. And I I got to thinking, I was like, you know... I need to look at things myself if I want to, if I want to see, if I want to, you know, understand it. And I guess it just, it gave a lot of answers to a lot of questions I had growing up. So I wouldn't say there was like key defining moments, but there were definitely, it was definitely just a journey that I'm, I guess I'm still on at the moment. But I think the biggest thing for me was 
just being around more Muslims and, and just seeing their relationship to their faith kind of inspired me in a lot of different ways. You mentioned Tiznima, you know, the connection between faith and activism, which I find really interesting. Do you think you can talk some more about that? Yeah, so obviously when I when I started looking into into the religion more um, and when I also got involved with activism as well, I just saw how the two just go together. Like I, f- I felt like it, it suddenly made sense to me in a lot of ways. It's like I feel like it's a duty as a Muslim to do all the work that I do and, and, and more obviously and... For me, that made sense because I feel like when I was younger, I couldn't really grapple the idea of the fact that I was in England and had had more privileges than I would have had, say, if I was back home. I didn't understand that at that time. Like, why was I, why was I, you know, given this route kind of thing? And then, really, Islam gave me the answers to a lot of them. Um, and I and I realized now how this is not just. Um, th- I'm doing this for my faith. I'm doing this for God. Um, it, you know, God gave me, you know, these privileges to use to to do this to to alleviate other people's suffering. And I think all, yeah, it just it, for me, it just made sense. Suddenly, like I felt like this responsibility that I had, it just made sense as a Muslim that this is what I had to do. So Tisnima, you are the co-founder of Nijar Manush, which is a campaigning organisation for Bengalis and Bangladeshis in the UK. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about what it is that you do as an organisation, who your community is? So um, Nijar Manush is an independent campaigning group that aims to educate, empower and organise Bengalis and Bangladeshis in the UK. Yeah, so we are a group of young Bengalis who alternatively alternatively wanted to create a clear kind of alternative for radical left uh, non-party politics for other Bengalis and Bangladeshis to engage with. And when did you sort of start? What are your main aims and why do you think the work is important? Minister Manush, we started in around 2017. And um, at first we connected with each other because we were both kind of we were all kind of Bengalis and we were also within the activism scene yeah we we started as a way to connect other Bengali activists and community workers organizers and um, our aim is really to engage and politicize Bangladeshis and Bengalis within the UK and we opted to organize Bengalis and Bangladeshis specifically so as to be able to address particular conditions affecting our community, at the same time be able to engage in diaspora politics with those, you know, from from Bangladesh originally. I think that, that there's a lot of reasons um, why why we created Nijal Manosh and, you know, like, for example, some of them are like, uh, so the Bangladeshi community within the UK we actually face um, among the one of the highest rates of uh, poverty and deprivation within the country. People of Bangladeshi origin are most at risk of dying from COVID nineteen, etc. You know, we have we have kind of specific struggles that you know there are specific struggles that the Bangladeshi Bengali community face in the UK. Basically, whilst the political context back home is also uh, quite distinct from all the other countries within the Indian subcontinent. You know, when we are categorized under this kind of like wider South Asian label, 
all these kind of differences are often overlooked, missed out on. Also, you know, there's a lot of Bengali cultural work being done by our communities in the UK, um, which which is actually great. But this, for the most part, is really like all this work is kind of deeply depoliticized and apolitical, are kind of carried out through the framework of secularism or state multiculturalism. And there's a whole lot of kind of celebrating your culture, but there's no kind of agitating. And I guess we knew from the outset that that we wanted to kind of fill that vacuum of like radical Bengali activism that works independent of the state and and really addresses the material conditions of our communities. I guess in short, we want our politics to, to continue the radical legacies of our communities that that fought fascists and fought state violence and strive to kind of uphold principles of um, anti-capitalism and and, and anti-racism. So you mentioned, you know, you have a very intentional focus on the British Bangladeshi community. So I think this is a nice linking to the question I'm going to ask you about. What do you think about the term South Asian and what are the sort of limitations of that term? Any identity or any kind of label that overlooks and kind of misses out on the differences between communities, I think is problematic. I think the South Asian label is also quite harmful, I think, especially for Bengali and Bangladeshi communities, because we are labelled with communities that um, we did, that, that committed genocide against our communities. And I think putting those those communities together is very uh is is harmful in 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 a lot of ways obviously you know i do understand that countries from the indian subcontinent south asian communities obviously have similarities um so i understand the south asian label but like any label like any identity label there's going to be there's going to be some type of flattening of differences yeah definitely it is an there seems to be a homogenization of the South Asian community in the UK. So I do think what Ninja Manish is doing is quite different and you're carving out a niche for yourself as purely for British Bangladeshis. How do you think the experience of British Bangladeshis um, differs from the wider sort of diaspora? You mentioned that we have different sort of material impacts, but can you tell us a bit more about what you mean? I think like that there are key issues facing Bengalis and Bangladeshis within the UK at the moment, you know, such as policing, uh, immigration, gentrification, racism, Islamophobia, counterterrorism, poverty, etc. And, you know, in many ways, racism and and state violence towards Bengalis um, and Bangladeshis has remained the same will come kind of full circle in the last 40 years. You know, the issues of all these immigration enforcements, etc., have either been renamed or, or come into resurgence recently. And, you know, there are specific issues that Bengali Bangladesh is going through. Counterterrorism measures like, like prevent and um, state violence through Islamophobia, these are heavily target- targeting Bengali communities and 
almost now shape kind of the racialization of Bengalis within Britain. And obviously, like gentrification of Bengali heavy areas like East London um, is also developments that are, you know, heavily impacting us. These are all very um, specific to our communities that we wanted to address. You mentioned, Tiznima, you know, racism towards Bengalis and Bangladeshis. What do you think about the intra-community racism from other South Asians that Bengalis face and how do you think that's affected your activism? Well, um, I think I kind of first understood um, the intra-community kind of racism against Bangladeshi Bengalis when I actually came online um, because obviously I wasn't, um, I didn't, you know, grow up around Pakistanis, etc. But um, seeing the kind of genocide denial, the casual racism, um, even the even the stereotypes that they would say um, about Bengalis under the under the guise of jokes, you know, I, I I feel like it really shaped why there is a need to um, why first of all, you know, just claiming we're all South Asian is is problematic, and secondly, why there was a reason that we uh, organised under the banner of Bangladeshis and Bengalis. Um, we are not looking to erase any of our experiences you know all of our parents you know have stories of the 1971 genocide and I'm not going to be you know I'm not we, we we shouldn't feel ashamed to to announce that our experiences are different you know our parents survived genocide some of their parents probably contributed to that genocide um we are not the same it, in those ways and you know the power dynamics i re- i really saw the power dynamics within south south asian communities i think online firstly and then obviously um in organizing spacing after we were you know told kind of to be silent for the under the guise of you know solidarity and you know so that's that's not what solidarity is you know it's understanding differences and 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 kind of going forward with them but like I guess, um, you know, that wasn't my experiencing, uh, you know, with with organising spaces, with cultural spaces especially. And, you know, the problem is that it was only just 50 years ago um, and these kind of stereotypes, these racial stereotypes, they're not, they weren't being, you know, called out at that time. Um, You know, there are, there's a racial background as to why, you know, Pakistanis call uh, all Bengali short and dark and, and, and stuff like that, you know. And yeah, th- those things weren't being called out at all. It's something that obviously the Pakistani community need to need to deal with themselves. I think, I, I genuinely think um, that slowly they actually are being more open to to understand, understanding the genocide and understanding their history from their parents or or whoever is deeply deeply flawed so i i do i do see a turning point in, in that in that respects from the pakistani diaspora within the uk and 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 the us anyway um what does community look like for you right now tisnima community to me right now looks like it looks like safety um it looks like healing it looks like just a space to be um, kind of unapologetically who you are, you know, in different in different realms as well. Community is community to me because I feel like I didn't have it growing up in the same way I have it now. Anyway, 
is reaching out for help, being supported. It's solidarity. It's mutual aid. It's forgiveness. It's, you know, all, all these things. Yeah, I love that. I think I completely agree with you. I think community to me is firstly about people. It's about being understood. It's about relating to each other's experiences and also feeling safe. You also work with the Restless Beings, which is a human rights organisation working with some of the most oppressed and silenced groups across the globe. Could you tell us a bit more about the work that Restless Being does and how you are involved? Yeah, so Restless Beings, I feel like was actually kind of my, I would say one of my introductions to organising collectively anyway. Um, I started with them in 2017 and what led me to to start with them um, was my, I guess, passion for like the, the Rohingya community um, and how silent, I guess, um, the world was in terms of in terms of this genocide going on um restless so restless beings we have numerous amount of projects we have the rohingya project we have the assam project we have we had a kyrgyzstan project a punjab project and we basically work with you know marginalized groups and specifically with groups that we don't feel that we feel like are not getting enough attention within the mainstream you know mainstream or, or internationally so yeah so we've been working with the rohingya uh, community for more than 10 years and obviously like 10 11 years ago when we when rest is being started um at that time most people didn't even know what Rohingya was or they didn't know genocide was going on. I am currently um, project lead for the Assam project within uh, India. And um, what's going over there is um, around 2 million people within Assam um, have lost their citizenship. Though Out of those 1.9 million, majority are Bengalis and majority are poor and majority are also um women so um yeah that's that's a project that we we started um a couple of years ago and main reason why we started it is because again this community within assam the bengali speaking community within assam was being oppressed and when i looked into it more this community has gone through s- several massacres over the last you know 50 years um targeting bengalis um and now, I mean, it's it's just ridiculous when, when you see it on a timeline because you just see ha- what what happened. So obviously at the start, you know, pre-colonial times, Bengalis were in Assam and were kind of actually um, encouraged to go to Assam by the British um, due to uh, revenues, uh, crop revenues, etc. And when the borders closed and suddenly Assam became India and Silet became, you know, Bangladesh or East Bengal at that time. Suddenly you can see with the creation of these borders, you can suddenly see these people were suddenly labelled infiltrators and aliens and immigrants, etc. And then slowly as time went on, this country, this this community were more and more oppressed, had a lot of different um, pogroms and massacres targeted against them, all targeted. And now we're kind of kind of at the last end of it, end of the timeline. And and now all these this community that that has have gone through so much now have had their citizenship. And when you're 
when you're a non-citizen, you're almost a non-human now because you don't have any rights. You're not considered um, a person, you know, anymore. That means any kind of atrocity against you is automatically justified. Um, And I think comparing it to what the Rohingya went through as well, very, very similar. Rohingya went through, you know, a lot of violence and then the citizenship was stripped of them. And and then um, one million Rohingya refugees now are in Bangladesh. Same thing happened here. Now this community has had the citizenship stripped of them and their fate, Nobody kind of knows what's going to happen. I mean, probably what's going to happen is, you know, they're going to be stuck in detention centres all their lives. Um, And I went went to Assam uh, in 2018 to kind of, to start the project, to talk to lawyers, organisations on the ground, etc. And it was life-changing in a lot of ways. And it was, it was mad in a lot of ways because these were women that literally looked like my mum, looked like my nanny, my auntie or whatever, spoke like them as well, being locked up forever in these detention centres. And it's crazy because even within India, there wasn't massive, massive backlash against this 1.9 million citizen people that have lost their citizenship. And I think, you know, the main reason is because, again, if you're a community that is seen as not belonging there and you're seen as non-citizens and you're seen as immigrants, et cetera, you're, you're just suddenly, you know, that compassion that people see is, is no longer there. I mean, some of the stuff you deal with, Tizanima, is really intense. It's really heavy, lots of sensitive topics. And I imagine it gets really difficult for you as well. How do you take care of yourself as an activist in these spaces? Um, probably not the best person to talk about how to take care of themselves because I'm still learning. Um, I think, I think the fact that most of the work that I do is kind of very personal as well. Nizhul Manish is about Bangalis and Bangladeshis and Restless Beings is also about migrant communities, but, you know, mainly Bengalis as well. It gets hard and it gets really frustrating sometimes because sometimes I don't see an end goal and I guess sometimes in my mind there's like there's two ways out like there's the hopeful the optimism way that I'm always trying to be because I feel like you have to be in these spaces because you have to be fighting for something a better world anything but then it's the other kind of side that feels frustrated in the fact that I can't seem to do anything um, about you know people's conditions I'm working with it gets it gets really hard actually how I cope I, I don't really know how I wouldn't be able to tell you exactly how I do hope praying a lot does help because ultimately everything is in God's God's hand and Allah's will and it takes that not responsibility but part of that away from me if that makes sense like I'm as long as I know I'm doing as much as I can I feel like then I leave the rest to God uh, and that's and that's really what it is because obviously in Islam you have to you're supposed to do everything for God, um, then you won't I guess feel this defeated. But yeah, it's it, I guess it's just a time where sometimes it's hard to 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 see the the other world and and the hope and stuff. And I guess something that does help is uh, I read a lot and I read from people that really do believe in another world. And that it's coming, and I and I also, you know, look at look at other campaigners and organizers and activists before me, and 
you know, I have to understand that I'm just one person in this massive movement that has thousands, millions of people within it. And understanding my place within the movement, I guess, helps as well, because there have been millions of people before me and there will be hundreds of people, thousands of people after me as well. And that's okay. I'm just, you know, I'm just one person. And as long as I'm doing as much as I can, then I guess I'll be okay. Yeah, I think even with me, it's really easy to suffer from burnout. So I do take active steps to, you know, get off social media, unwind a little bit and not lose sight of the bigger picture. Because sometimes it does feel a little insular that you are the only person who's doing this work. But it's important to remember, as you said, that there were thousands of people before you and there will be thousands of people after you as well who are doing this work and who want to make systemic change. What tips do you have for other sort of young activists like yourself who want to get into organising and who want to campaign? Um, tips, I would say, I think one of the biggest tips I would give is understanding your place. Um, and that means is that I see a lot of discourse a lot of the times from young people looking to get into activism and having this idea that they're the first ones. It's not the best way to to go into activism because it's very individualised and, and you're suddenly, it's just about, you know, the individual, etc. I think what the best thing that I could did before I got really into activism is is read a lot about from activists and from organizers and understand the history of what I'm what I'm going into, if that makes sense. I would another tip I would give for, for young activists is literally um don't be afraid of of anyone, of anything. That there, there's been a lot of I think also Bengali girls I would say are not always encouraged to go down this line or even to get involved I guess um by some of our elders that that can happen sometimes but I would always say um you know be unapologetic in that way of, of who you are what you're doing what you want to I think it's always good not to have a goal but to Maybe because obviously there's a lot of things in the whole world that that need changing and that need help. But going into something that you have raw passion for and that ultimately you would die for as well is, is, I feel like, the line to go down, if that makes sense. Because I think there's a lot of stuff that were shown and a lot of struggles, etc. But... I would say, yeah, go down, go down the line that you that you really feel like a fire in your in your soul for. That's really great advice, Isnima. Thank you. Especially the bit about understanding your positionality, especially if you're working in the global south as a Western person, it's important not to subconsciously reproduce those Orientalist um, thinking of you know going there to save the native population or whatever. So I think that's a really good point that you that you brought up. What do you hope for the future of Bengalis and Bangladeshi communities in the UK? I hope that our communities go down a line of becoming more and more politicised and going down the line of, you know, organising and community organising, you know. I think we really need to reject the idea of this kind of ind- individualism approach that that many that many people, especially online, have 
we need to come together as a community. And that also means we need to be in solidarity with other communities, other racialized communities as well. And we also, as a community, need to understand that our liberation will only come with the liberation of all and that also means, you know, not just not just other racialized communities. It also means um, other, you know, like um, other sexualities, etc. The genders. Um, we we need to understand that we first we need to understand that some of our views come from. Um, there's a history of them come from you know either Vic- the Vic- Victorian era, era and colonial era era as well. We need to obviously unlearn a lot of things and learn a lot of things. Um, I think we need to also kind of. I mean, this is what I think anyway. I think we need to reject the state multiculturalism that is kind of being forced upon us the identity of we need to kind of let go of this kind of fight about the identity if we're if you're british and want to be seen british and all of that i think we need to let go of those identity issues those um we need to let go of kind of representative politics as well and even even um party politics and we need to look down the road of collective activism radical organizing in those ways we need to look down on you know abolition all those all those things thanks Nima. Thank you to all of our listeners and guest speakers who were involved in season one of our podcast focusing on identity. We've had so much fun producing this season and getting to know some of you. Keep your eyes peeled for season two of our podcast with co-hosts Nishma Jethwa and Ravideep Kaur. Before we go, we'd like to thank Minnie Bullar and Anaya Hussain for editing this episode and producing this season of the podcast, as well as US-based artist and activist Kaki Kazi for the amazing cover art. A huge thank you also to Substeppers, a British-Asian duo, for the music. To listen to the full track and more of their work, click the link in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time.